Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. Praise God. We're in the fifth week of our foundation series. We're dealing with the topic of baptisms and it's part two this week. As a church, for those who don't know, we're going through the foundational principles found in Hebrews 6, verses 1 and 2. There are six stated there. And what a blessing it is to firm up the foundations for those of us who are familiar and being reminded. It's a blessing and it's so important for us to be brought in remembrance of God's word and for many of us it's a laying of a foundation that was either, has either never been there or never laid properly and so we're looking at the topic of baptisms it's part two if you weren't here last week then I'd recommend you get the audio or go to the website and download the podcast it is available um, so that you've got some kind of continuity and um, bearing in mind that this is a follow-on from last week praise God let's bow our heads in prayer dear Lord God and Heavenly Father we thank you so much for your goodness towards us we thank you Lord that you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light that Lord you have set us on higher ground. You've set us on a rock that cannot be shaken, cannot be moved, the rock of ages. Jesus Christ is his name. Lord, we're so grateful for the fact that despite what we go through, despite how we feel, Lord, you are faithful. You are God. You are sovereign. You have a plan and purpose for the lives of your people that you are working out. You are faithful to finish the work that you started in us, Lord, unto the day of Christ Jesus. Lord, we're able to rest peacefully in your love and security. And as we do so, Lord, we do so with willing hearts. Hearts willing to hear your word and walk in your ways. Teach us your ways that we might walk in it, Lord. Help us, Lord, where we have to relearn and reevaluate things that we've previously understood. We recognize that you are the infinite God. We will spend eternity gaining revelation of who you are. And so help us, Lord, I pray, as we come before you, recognizing our own frailty and limitations, whilst at the same time recognizing your greatness, your majesty, your power. Have your way, Lord, as you speak to us by your spirit. Amen. Amen. Now, as I mentioned, we're going through the foundation series. And not only are we doing this because it is profitable as far as teaching is concerned, but we're also doing this in view of the fact that we are 
introducing membership to the life of Calvary Chapel, South London. And um, the word says that we are to know those who labor among us. As we'll see, tail end of this message and going into next week, we are saved to serve. We're not just saved to warm seats until Jesus comes. And for every single one of us, every single one of you, the Lord has a plan and purpose for your life within the context of the body of Christ. And so this series is part of the equipping, the establishing of us as a church so that we're on the same page and so that we can move forward in the, in the plan and purposes of God for our lives. Um, there are those of you who have put your name down to indicate that you, what sessions you've been sat in on. And again, I'd remind you that the, the sheets are out on the table. So if you haven't already marked yourself in for today, please do remember to do that before you go, just so we can um, stay up to date with our administration. Amen. Okay, baptisms. Let's go. Last week, I endeavored to unpack the meaning of baptism in a general sense. The meaning of baptism. I know for some people it may have been, again, a reminder. For some people it was uh, a look at baptism from another angle. I once heard someone say that the altar call in the modern church has taken the place of Christian baptism. In terms of that point at which we mark someone as being saved, quote unquote. We will often look to that point at which they visited the altar and surrendered their all. Now, evangelistic statistics show us that, you know what, that is not a very reliable marker by which we can define someone's conversion experience. And their commitment to the Lord. A survey was done. And over a three year period. One particular denomination. Took record of all those who had come forward. To make professions of faith. In services and meetings. At the end of the three years. They found that about 10% of them were still walking with the Lord. And so, we recognize that the profession of faith made, quote-unquote, at an altar call when someone comes forward, in and of itself, isn't a reliable means of identification. The altar call was never meant to take the place of Christian baptism. Christian baptism... Is such that it is supposed to be that event, that point in time where we are openly professing that we have become a disciple of Jesus Christ. Remember last week we had a look at Mr. Miyagi? Daniel san And how we see culturally, especially in Eastern cultures, but even with our own culture, we see 
different expressions of commitment, often known as rites of passage, that mark the passing of the old and an introduction to the new. So the marriage ceremony, for example, it's interesting that in scripture we don't see any kind of marriage ceremony prescribed as to this is how you do it. We see principles there as to what getting married ought to involve. But we don't actually have a a ceremony prescribed. And yet we recognize that within most cultures, there is that point at which two people are openly identified within their community as being separated one to another. And at that point, there is expected to be a change. That they are no longer one as individuals, but they're one as a couple, forsaking all others. And so this is what we see with baptism. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with our series, let me just give you the root reference. Hebrews 6, verses 1 and 2, which reads as follows. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. fundamental to the Christian experience is supposed to be the principle and act of baptism. As Richard mentioned earlier, there are only two ordinances or two physical acts, if you like, that Jesus ordained as being standing features of the Christian faith. One we've already shared in this morning, which was communion. And the other is baptism. And so, understanding the meaning of baptism as being an initiation and registration, a beginning of the life of discipleship, a physical outward expression of our commitment to Jesus as our Lord, as our master, as our teacher, Submitting ourselves to follow his word and ways, his codes and conduct, his principles and practice, abandoning the old and accepting the new, we see that baptism is highly important. It is something that is misunderstood, often misapplied, or just blatantly missed out. Now there's one aspect of the meaning of baptism that I want to clarify this week before I move on to deal with some of those questions that I left you with as a cliffhanger last time. One of the things that baptism signifies to us as believers I touched on it last time. The fact that after baptism, 
We are recognized to be a new person. We have a new social identity. And part of this comes from the understanding of the word that's used in the, the Greek for baptism. The root word is bapto, which means to dip, immerse, place under, and raise up. And the general idea is that the item baptized, and it was a word that was not just used for people but for things, would go into that which it was being baptized with and come out different. It would be dipped and different. And again, in accordance with what Richard mentioned as we prepare to share communion today, if we are in Christ, then there is an expectation that we are to act in accordance with that profession. That we're to act in accordance with that reality. Now, God has made provision to ensure that we are enabled to do so because it's not of our own strength. And we'll talk about that shortly. But in terms of baptism, when an individual is being baptized, we talked about the baptism of Moses, we talked about the baptism of John the Baptist, the baptism of the proselyte who was a non-Jew taking on the Jewish religion. There was always the expectation that there would be a fundamental change in that individual's character in conformity to the one that they have been baptized into. So ask yourself today a searching question. Assuming you have been baptized, and I know there will be many who haven't, but assuming you have been baptized, has there been a change in your life? Has there been a change that identifies the fact that you are not the same person you were living after your own ways, following your own ideas. But actually, your character has been transformed and you are living more like Christ. You see, that is supposed to be one of the results of baptism. A fundamental change in our identity. Okay. Believer's baptism. <clears throat> now, I'm going to deal with the issue of believer's baptism. And as I mentioned before, um, there were many different things that I heard growing up concerning baptism. Let me just reference again with two scriptures from which um, we'll give some attention. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, 
even to the end of the age. And also, Acts chapter 1, 4 and 5. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait from, for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. When I speak of believers' baptism, I'm speaking of these two aspects. Now, there are those who would say, hold on, there's a contradiction. Is that two different baptisms? Are they the same thing? Hmm. But hold on, doesn't it say in Ephesians 4, and you might want to turn and look at this one. Ephesians 4, verses 4 and 5, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith. How many baptisms? One baptism. Hmm. One baptism. So how is it that Jesus speaks of two baptisms? In Matthew 28, he talks about baptism with water. And in Acts, he talks about baptism with the Holy Spirit. I mean, all scriptures inspired of God, right? And God don't contradict himself, right? So... Now we've got one baptism in Ephesians and two baptisms elsewhere. Huh. Well, we actually see a clue to the answer in Ephesians 4. In verse 4 we see the Apostle Paul state there is one body and one spirit. And in that we see an external identification and an internal identification. We can see one another as a body. We cannot see one another as spirits. We can't even see ourselves as spirits. And yet we know that we are a spirit with a soul living in a body. And what we see here is a statement that is a theme throughout the New Testament which speaks of the visible body of Christ and the invisible body of Christ. The visible body of Christ and the invisible body of Christ. Now are they two different things? Yes and no. You're really going to have to stay with me today, right? Making all of these contradictory statements. Two baptisms that are one. Invisible and visible body. Are they? Well, they are the same thing, but they're not. First Thessalonians 4 verse 17 is a verse that helps to clarify for us the relationship between the visible body of Christ and the invisible body of Christ. 
the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. Now, if we are part of the, those who are alive and remain, who are we going to be caught up with? What does that verse tell us? You can talk back to me, it's all right. Those in, those in the grave, is it just any old people in the grave? Those who died in the Lord, those who died in Christ. You see, we recognize that spiritually, everyone exists for eternity. Quite simply, there are those who are in Christ and those who are not. And so those people who have died in Christ, even though they're no longer walking the earth, they are still part of the body of Christ. And as a result, they become a, a part of the invisible body of Christ, which we are also a part of. Because our spirits, having been renewed, as we'll see shortly, causes us to be placed spiritually into the invisible spiritual body of Christ. So there are the dead in Christ and then those who are alive. And those who are alive are the visible body of Christ. And this is a theme if you bear it in mind, it will help you as you go through the scriptures. So one of the things it helps us to appreciate and understand is in Ephesians, Paul says, saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Amen. It's not of works. And then James comes along and says, hold on a minute. Faith without works is dead. Show me your faith by your works. And some people are like, but hold on, I thought it weren't about works. And yet we see that James's emphasis is on the visible. Show me. You profess Christ, saving faith. Yeah, and we want to like love you as part of the family of God, the visible body of Christ. Then show us in it. We want to see some evidence. Because God knows your heart, but we don't. And so Roman, I'm sorry, Ephesians speaks of a spiritual reality. Saved by grace through faith, not of works. But James speaks of a practical reality. And so it's a theme that we see running through the New Testament. And so likewise, when it comes to baptism, there is only one baptism. Remember we said last time, it's not whose name you're baptized in, in the name of Jesus, I baptize thee. But it's who you're baptized into, a discipleship relationship with. And so there's only one baptism, there's only one Jesus, there's only one Lord who is calling people to believe on him and be baptized. There is only one saviour. 
And yet we see that there are two aspects to the baptism. Baptism with the spirit and baptism with water. The inward and the outward. Now, when we track back, we see that with the, uh, the disciples in John chapter 20, verse 22, they had an experience of receiving the Holy Spirit. It says that Jesus breathed on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And at this point, we see not so much the baptism with the Holy Spirit, but the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit being conferred upon them by Jesus. And this was predicted by Jesus in John chapter 7, which reads as follows, verse 38. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive. Future tense. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. John seven thirty nine. So whilst the disciples were working with, walking with Jesus, they were still under the old covenant. They were still under the law and the prophets. And they had yet to receive the Holy Spirit in any way, shape or form. We see that clearly from that verse in John chapter 7. And yet, in John chapter 20, after Jesus has risen from the grave has been glorified, he breathes on them and they receive the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. We see that this is a reflection of what took place in Genesis chapter 2 when the Lord breathed into Adam and he became alive, a living soul. And so what Jesus done in John chapter 20 in breathing in them is recognized to be the point at which they experience the new birth. They became a new creation. And yet there was more to come. Because after that, Jesus predicted that they were to go and receive, go and wait to receive the promise of the Father. So in Luke 24, verse 49, this is what the Lord says. He says, behold, I send the promise of my father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem or wait in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And so here we see a clear and definite turning point in history. That these individuals who would receive the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, that they would 
by reason of the power from on high, become a unit, a body, an organism, an organization set apart from all others. What Jesus was speaking of here was the establishing of the new order. The people of the new covenant, the church. And so in Acts 2, verses 1 to 4, we see the fulfillment. When the day of Pentecost had fully come. It's all right for us to get little Pentecostal around here. It's Bible. Amen. (laughs) When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. And one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so at that moment in time, we see a public phenomena take place. The whole of Jerusalem were rocked by it. As these individuals had this spiritually phenomenal experience that was clearly evident to all. And all eyes were on them in Jerusalem at the time. And people were looking at them saying, what in the world is going on? And some were saying, these guys are drunk. And yet they heard, all these people from different nations, heard God glorified in their own languages. And it reached them in their hearts. And they realized something significant was going on. And what we see right there is the birth of the church. From the very beginning, God planned and has purposed to have a people that are his own. We see the prototype in Adam and Eve. And yet sin comes and mars the relationship. And then he sets Abraham apart and he calls him out of the Ur of the Chaldees and he says, Abraham, Come with me. Come and go to that place that I will show you. And then he makes a promise to Abraham and he says, Abraham, from you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. And from Abraham, we see the birth of the Jewish nation. And God gave them laws and said, look, you are mine. You are to be holy, set apart and distinct from all other peoples and cultures. Don't intermarry. Don't take on their false gods. Keep yourself pure and separate unto me. And yet we see that that was not fulfilled in the children of Israel. But God had a plan. God had a plan. And it ain't no plan B. It's it's plan A that God had purposed from before the foundation of the ages. Because all of those experiences were to be a reflection of what was to be fulfilled in and through Christ. 
And so through that people, Jesus came. And he died and he rose from the dead. And he set apart a people. A people who wouldn't be just reliant on their, on their own strength to try and please God. And be God's people. But a people who would receive power from on high. In order to be distinct and separate. The people of God. And so this is what we see. As you sit here, if you are a part of the church, you are a part of God's plan A. You are a part of God's ultimate plan for a people in the world. It is a calling, a high calling that the Lord help us to really appreciate and realize what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. To be a part of the church. And so we see spiritual baptism, baptism with the Holy Spirit is the point at which those individuals became the church. The body of Christ. Now what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us with regards to how does that affect us? I mean, we've got some questions to answer. When is a person baptized with the Holy Spirit? Does someone need to lay hands on you to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Is baptism with the Spirit the same as being filled with the Spirit? Mm. Do you need to speak in tongues to prove you have received the baptism with the Holy Spirit? Do you go to hell if you're not water baptized? Why does water baptism involve going into water anyway? Whose name should I have been water baptized in? Jesus only? Or Father, Son and Holy Spirit? Well, consider this first before I begin to answer those questions. We see from scripture, and I can only encourage you, as I always do, you know what, make note of these references. I'm only sorry I don't have a screen today to be able to put them in front of your faces. But make note of these references because you are going to want to, you are going to need to go back and refer to them again and consider them. We see from scripture in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13 that all who believe 
are baptized into one body. So Paul says this, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greek, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. That's 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. Paul speaks about that in the past tense. And he speaks of all believers. And he stresses the fact that it relates to all believers by identifying the different categories and the different people groups. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. All who believe and have repented, put their faith in Christ, are baptized by one spirit. And so, point of clarification, something that helped me get some kind of clarity with regards to the confusion that I experienced in my own life growing up. Because I grew up in an environment where we were taught to tarry. We were taught to tarry. Some of you, I got a witness in there. I know some of you know about tarrying. Sore knees. Tarry basically means to wait. But it sounded very spiritual when you said tarry. Because <laughs> we would have tarrying services. And the whole point was that during the tarrying service, you would tarry until you were endued with power from on high, until you received the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And so it would basically involve Musicians playing very moodily, generating the atmosphere, the emotion. And then we would be on our knees very often, calling out on the Lord, tarrying for the Lord to baptize us with his Holy Spirit. And how would we know? Well, I was taught that it was with the evidence, hey, come on now, of speaking in tongues. And if you didn't speak in tongues, you weren't supposed to move from that altar right there on your knees. Tarry little longer. And one of the reasons it was a confusion for me, not because I even really had my head in the Bible at that time, but I saw good people who I knew were, they had the spirit of God. I had one friend, and I tell you, this brother, exemplary brother in the faith. Not in a proudful way, but just a brother that we all admired and esteemed in the faith. One of my peers. Circumspect, sober-minded, focused individual. And I remember not just one, nor two, not even three, but lots of tarrying services. Where my brother almost had his head worn off, his hair worn off his head. People laying hands and praying that he would receive the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And you would, you would often hear people say, I'm talking tongues yet. 
at the end of the service. Well, I didn't hear anything. Oh, we have to tarry a little longer. We have to pray a little harder. And, I, and, and it began to be a problem for me because I was like, Lord, you know what? I don't understand this. This brother walks uprightly. He's a witness. I mean, it, it was me, him, and the next brother that established the Christian union in our college when there weren't none. He wasn't ashamed of the gospel. I mean, he was bold. He, and I was like, Lord, I see such fruitful evidence in this guy's life. What is the problem? And you begin to ask questions like, Lord, like, is he in sin? Has he got a secret sin? Lord, is it, is it um, that, you know, he, he, there's a blockage, there's a hindrance in his life. And you start extrapolating some ideas that maybe it's a generational curse. And all of that stemmed from a misunderstanding of how the baptism with the Holy Spirit applies to us as believers today. You see, the laying on of hands and speaking with other tongues was a commission exclusive to the apostles in that regard. And you do a survey of Acts and you look at all of the different occasions where you see people baptized and then people baptized with the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. And you see a progression as you go through the book of Acts. And you also see a principle. Now I look through Acts. I look to every reference relating to baptism with the Holy Spirit. And you know one of the things that I noted. Was on every occasion. And there are three of them. That baptism with the Holy Spirit was, was spoken of directly. And people were speaking with other tongues. It always involved the apostles, not even just the disciples, quote unquote, but the apostles. The 11 slash 12, including Paul, who were personally commissioned by the risen Lord Jesus to establish the church. So Acts 2, we know that the apostles were in the upper room with over 120 other disciples. We see in Acts 8 that Philip, in verses 12 and 13, was water baptizing Sumerians, half Jews. The gospel was spreading. And yet we see that it was actually the baptism with the Holy Spirit took place by the hands of Peter and John, not Philip. Again, we see in Acts 10, when the Lord appears to Peter and says, look, go and baptize the Gentile, Cornelius. And he receives the vision. And it's a turning point because he's like, Lord, for Gentiles to be freely admitted among your people, that's just not a done thing. And yet the Lord says to him, look, what I have cleansed, let no man call common or unclean. This gospel is for all people. And so you go. And so we see 
That as in Acts 10, Peter preached the word, they believed, and the Holy Spirit came upon them and they began to speak with other tongues. tongues. And it was at that point that Peter said, wow, how can we prevent them from being baptized and recognized as a part of the body of Christ? How can, how can we forbid them when the Lord has clearly endorsed them? And so what we're seeing is the establishing of the identity of the church. The Jews first, the half-Jews, then the Gentiles. Progressively at the hands of the apostles. And then we see in Acts 19, the apostle Paul who encountered John's disciples. And he said, have you heard of the Holy Spirit since you believed? They said, what? And he was like, so what then were you baptized into? We were baptized into John's baptism, the baptism of repentance. I mean, we're serious about wanting to do the will of God. He's like, okay then. He baptized them into the name of the Lord Jesus. So John's discipleship was no longer valid. And John himself said that. It was now all about Jesus. And so they became disciples of Jesus Christ. And what happened? Paul laid hands on them and the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. And so right there we see, again, an endorsement. Not just of God's acceptance of these people who were once John's disciples, but we also see an endorsement of Paul as an apostle. Ephesians 2.20 says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now once that foundation has been laid, it doesn't need to be laid again. And so the church is established on the word and works of the apostles as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And that serves as a testimony to, to us today that this new entity, this new people group have become established and recognized. This teaching has been endorsed. The message of the gospel was verified with those signs. And the messengers were endorsed and verified. And so as we now read the testimony, we have confidence and clarity as to the outworking of God's purposes for setting himself apart a people. And because of that confidence and clarity, we no longer need to speak with tongues to evidence the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Because as we just looked at 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul said we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greek, whether slaves or free. Speaking of all who believe. And so, when is a person baptized with the Holy Spirit? At the point of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Reference Acts 2.38 and also Acts 
Repentance and faith is to proceed. Baptism with water and is the point at which an individual is baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, one of the things we have to bear in mind that that is not a physical or emotional experience. So it's not one that spiritually you're going to be able to say, ooh, I felt that, I felt that. I I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I'm a part of the body of Christ now because I, I, I felt. I know the very point at which I repented and believed and was received into the spiritual body of Christ. Not at all. And it is a challenge, especially to those of us who are led by our feelings and who walk by our experiences. So when we don't feel the presence of the Holy Spirit, we feel like the Lord doesn't love us and we feel far from God and we feel low. And when we're in those moments of praise and it's beautiful and the word is rich and we feel great. But we're to walk by faith and not by feelings. Does someone need to lay hands on you to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit today? Well, you should be able to answer that. The answer is no. That was for the establishing of the identity of the new people, the new covenant people of God, the church. At the hands of those endorsed as special sent messengers, i.e. apostles. So as I say, you see incidences in Acts when people were baptized by disciples, by evangelists and you don't read of any encounter with regards to the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Does it mean that it didn't happen? No, it doesn't. But in the baptism in chapter 8, that Philip was conducting, he baptized with water, but it doesn't say that anyone encountered the baptism with the Holy Spirit until Peter and John came. Turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Because here we see the baptism of Saul later to be known as Paul. And we see Ananias speaking to Paul and explaining to him how the Lord had sent him If you look from verse 10. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight. And inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come in 
coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, are you serious? I've heard from many about this man, you know. How much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. Ananias is there, scared. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came, he sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once. And he arose and was baptized. Now it's interesting because Ananias said that you might receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And Paul received his sight, but it says simply afterwards that he arose and was baptized. Do we know that he spoke with other tongues? Do we know that the baptism was the baptism with the Holy Spirit? Well, we don't see that in the text, so we can't assume that. And yet we see when Paul went on to baptize and when he laid his hands as an apostle, there was an endorsement given that wasn't given to Ananias clearly in the text. And even in that we can see maybe some understanding of Paul's reference to himself when he talks about himself being an apostle born out of due season. He wasn't in the upper room with the other 11 apostles. And yet the Lord had appointed him as the 12th man, as it were. So, if no one has never laid their hands on you and you haven't spoken with tongues, don't feel rejected by God because it is clearly not a necessity with regards to you having received the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Amen? Now, for some of us, that's going to be a new perspective. For some of us, that's going to be a different point of view. For some of us, that might be a little unsettling because we're used to the kind of experience that I spoke about. The kind of experience where people are saying, receive, 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 just speak. Just speak, just speak, just speak. Even giving you a dictation to, to copy. And they're speaking in their tongues and just, just say it like this. If you've never been in that experience, give thanks to the Lord. 
but it is such that it has been a common experience within the life of the church. And it breaks my heart because it shows me how far removed we are from an orthodox and sound understanding of the text. And so even in teaching this, it feels like it's a, it's a hard task in some senses because the common experience within the church is something completely different. But we have to let God be true and every man a liar. What about water baptism? Do you go to hell if you're not water baptized? Does water baptism save you? Or also known as baptismal regeneration? Well, the answer to that is no. No, you don't go to hell if you're not water baptized. And thank the Lord for the testimony of a dying man. And Jesus said of this dying man that his testimony would be shared all around the world. That thief on the cross, one of the two that were crucified beside Jesus, he called out to the Lord and he said, Lord, remember me this day as you enter your kingdom. And Jesus said, this day you will be with me in paradise. Was he baptized? Well, unless somebody done it when they took him off the cross. <laughs> and he was dead. You know, at that point, all he needed was to receive the baptism with the Holy Spirit. The, re the inner regenerating work done by God. And he would step into the kingdom. He didn't have any need to be identified with the visible body of Christ at that point. <laughs> He was making his exit, saying his farewells, goodbye world. <laughs> and so from that testimony, we see that clearly you do not go to hell if you're not water baptized. Does that mean that water baptism isn't necessary? It is necessary. And hopefully we understand that clearly. Why does water baptism involve going into water? I mean, what does it symbolize? Romans 6, 3 and 4. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And so that going down into the water and being immersed and brought back up is representative of our identification with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection unto newness of life. So whose name should I have been water baptized in? Well, remember, it's not in, but into. 
It's not in, but into. One of the interesting things we see is that there is a correlation between the title, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and that which Jesus was known by in Scripture being the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. In that it is a representative identity. Colossians says that in Christ is the fullness of the Godhead made visible. And so Jesus' identity was a, a representative identity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. On the day of his baptism, you heard the voice from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So the voice of the father speaking of the son as the Holy Spirit descended as a dove. Alighting on him. Right there you see as he comes out of the water of baptism, a picture of the Trinity. The triune nature of God. And so really, whether it was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit or Lord Jesus Christ, it's equivalent to the same thing. You became a disciple of Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And if it meant anything different to you, then that wasn't genuine baptism. But if that's what it meant to you and that was the mark that you were making by faith, then you don't have to be concerned because you were baptized baptized into a relationship with Jesus Christ as your Lord. If you were to take the name the Lord Jesus Christ and break it down in Hebrew, you'd see Lord as Adonai, Jesus as Yeshua, and Christ as Mashiach or Messiah. Lord Adonai, Adonai being a name Commonly used in the Old Testament to refer to God. Jesus, Yeshua, Savior. The son who was prophesied. And Christ, Messiah or anointed one. He who would be endued with the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit without measure. And so in that we see the relationship between the two phrases and why as the apostles went out and preached the gospel they used the terms interchangeably because they're not magic words in fact to add in the name of Jesus at the end of your prayer is not a magic word that gets all things done you can actually pray without saying that and be heard by God if you are in relationship With God through Jesus Christ. No man comes to the Father but through him. But once you're in him, you can speak to God on that basis. And sometimes for those around us, it is helpful for us to make such a statement. Whether it's in Jesus' name, meaning in his place or in his stead or in his authority. I've been authorized by him to come before you, Father, and pray this. Or for Christ's sake, some people used to say, Why would you want to pray for Christ's sake like he needs anything? But that's not what's being meant in that statement. 
for Christ's sake simply means that I'm heard because of what Jesus done and not what I've done. Because of the sake of his sacrifice, I've merited an audience with you, Father. So let's not get superstitious and abracadabra with these things. So there we have it. Baptism introduces us into the body of Christ, spiritually with the Holy Spirit, visibly with water. It's a memorial to the old life and a testimony to the new. It is a permanent new identity. And I'll close with this verse of scripture. And this is especially for those of you who have never been baptized. Hopefully now you've come to a clearer appreciation of its meaning. But I want to leave you with one of the key benefits of why you ought to be baptized. Even in addition to the fact that you need to obey Jesus if you're called his disciple. I mean, that's standard. But this is one of the great benefits that baptism offers. And it's found in 1 Peter 3 verse 21. Just make note of the verse. There is also an antitype which, is, which now saves us being baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, you can look at the context and wrestle with the context and it speaks about Noah and those eight souls that went with him into the ark as experiencing a type of baptism, a prototype of baptism. And how we now, as an anti-type, our baptism is a means by which we are, it's a means of grace, as many would call it, through which we are able to experience the fullness of God's saving power, understanding that Salvation isn't just the by and by, we'll be saved one day. We are saved now and we are being saved, preserved and changed progressively from day to day. And baptism helps us in that regard because it provides us with a good conscience toward God. How many times have you come under condemnation? By your own conscience. How many times have you come under condemnation from the whispering lies of Satan? You ain't a real Christian. You ain't serious. How can you talk like that and consider yourself to be a Christian? How can you really say that you're saved? Whoa. Lord, will you ever forgive me? Road rage upon road rage. And yet, the memorial of baptism in the life of the believer is an actual event that stands historically for us to refer to, realizing that it affirms our commitment and our acceptance by God on the basis of what Jesus has done for us. And so, 
Be baptized if you've yet to be. Mark yourself as part of the community who are recognized to be the church. Followers of Jesus Christ. You know what? We might not be pretty, but we're his. That's what matters. Let's pray. If we could ask the guys to um, come back and prepare to lead us in another song. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you because truly you are faithful. You're a faithful God, true to your word. And we recognize that you do all things well. What a blessing it is to be a part of your body. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for the fact that our spiritual admission and entry into your body is not a work of our own, but it's a work of your spirit. Regenerating us, changing us, adopting us as your children. That we might be recognized and named as a part of your own. For whom and through whom you desire to show yourself strong. Lord, I pray today for any who have yet to believe. Who have yet to believe because, Lord, maybe they've yet to repent. They've yet to see their sin and their sinfulness and the way in which it separates them from you and from all that you have for them. That you have new life, forgiveness, a clean slate. And you have a people to whom they're able to belong. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to their hearts. Cause them to have courage. The courage to surrender. The courage to submit themselves. making you Lord of their lives, their master. And Lord, for all who have yet to be baptized, Lord, I pray that you would, through all that has been shared, impress upon them the importance of them observing your institution, your your ordinance. And help us, Lord, as a body to cherish and value and appreciate exactly what baptism means that it is a physical memorial to the fact that we are yours we've been forgiven we've been sworn in we've been adopted into your family bless us Lord as we continue throughout our week and throughout this foundation series Lord If you have a desire for prayer, um, for any reason, then please do feel free to come up and we'd be privileged to pray with you. 
Um, let's stand. I'm